Well, this morning, God's Word leads us uh, to a topic that I recognize is for many of you in this room a very painful one. The idea of divorce has been around for generations upon generations, but in our modern culture and in our modern world, divorce has become an ever-increasing reality. In 1910, it was estimated that about 10% of U.S. marriages ended in divorce. By 1950, that number had ballooned to 25%. Today, more than 50% of U.S. marriages statistically will end in divorce. With the increase of divorce rates in our society, of course, has become the decline of marriage. So in 1970, the U.S. US Census Bureau said that half a million people in 1970 lived together outside of marriage. By the year 2000, the number of people living together outside of marriage had ballooned to 5.5 million. And here we are 16, now 17 years later, who knows what that number is at today. The statistics are staggering. But I know that for many of you, this is not just something that's, that's out there. This is just an issue that others have dealt with. This is an issue that for you hits very close to home. In the lives of your parents. In the lives of those closest to you. Maybe in your life and in your failed marriages. The good news, before we go anywhere this morning, diving into Jesus' teaching here, the good news is that we celebrate the gospel this morning. And that Jesus offers healing for those who are hurt and have been hurt by divorce That Jesus offers forgiveness to those who have regret concerning divorce. And Jesus doesn't speak to all the issues concerning divorce in this small exchange that he has with the Pharisees. But what he does address is important. It's important for our witness to the world as believers, as the church, And it's also important, as I was thinking about this, it's so important for our kids, for them to hear of God's intent, of God's will on these matters. This is not a sermon about divorce, about just divorce. It's actually a sermon about the beauty of God's design for marriage. And so I want us to dive into this passage, to this difficult subject with the first of of two truths that I want us to use to kind of frame our passage and to to get us into Jesus' teaching. The first truth is this, our sinful hearts love to soften God's commands. Our sinful hearts love to naturally love to soften God's commands. 
Now, as you look at this passage, this is a, this is a subtle point. This is a secondary point. But I want to begin here because I think the attitude of the Pharisees lead us in this direction. Mark puts out all the cards out on the table and says that Jesus is walking into a trap. Mark calls it a test. But the Pharisees are not interested in whether Jesus knows the answer to, his, to their question. They want Jesus to say the wrong thing. Maybe Jesus will say something that will offend the populace, the popular opinion with his radical views. Or maybe he'll say something that will raise the ire of Herod Antipas. Remember him? He's the one who beheaded John. He killed John when John questioned the legitimacy of his marriage with Herodias back in the earlier part of Mark. So maybe they can get to Jesus to say something where Jesus will get on Herod's radar screen and Herod will come hard with the sword. The Pharisees had worked with, excuse me, the Pharisees had worked with the Herodians in the past. Why not now? And so they asked Jesus this question, not an innocent question, but a vague question. And it's not one that's easily answered. Because every Jew knew that there were certain provisions for divorce. But not every Jew Jew agreed on what those provisions were. Because sinful hearts love to soften God's commands. Jesus, as he does before, as he has done before, they, he is posed with a question. What does Jesus do? He asks a question back. What did Moses say? Well, they knew what Moses said. Maybe you don't know what Moses said. So let me tell you what Moses said. Deuteronomy 24.1. Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and writes her a certificate of divorce. And then the passage goes on to explain some of the complexity involved in the issue. But the key word in that verse that I just read to you is the word indecency. If he finds some indecency, what does that mean? And history tells us that at the time of the asking of this question, at the time of this test of Jesus, that there were two schools of thought in the Jewish world, in the Jewish rabbinic tradition. There were two schools of thought, and interestingly enough, they reflected the modern thought on this issue as well. And the first school of thought was a conservative school, the school of Shammai, it was called. And they concluded that indecency meant sexual immorality or infidelity. These men knew the teaching of Genesis. They knew God's intent for marriage. And they knew that God hates divorce. And so indecency means sexual immorality or infidelity. Now let's just pause right there and go on a little side tangent. This isn't the point of the passage. And in a sense, Jesus sidesteps it here. But bringing up this issue of marriage and divorce brings up the issue of what does Jesus think about this? What does the New Testament think about this? 
Jesus and the New Testament are much closer, much more aligned with this conservative school. There are three things that break a covenant of marriage. The first is the death of a spouse, which some of you have experienced. The second is sexual immorality. Matthew 19, 9 says this, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Those are the words of Jesus in the same context that we're reading here, but in Matthew's account. Mark doesn't include these words because Mark's intent is not to get all wrapped up in the exceptions But this is the clear teaching of Scripture. And then later in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16, desertion by an unbeliever. You can imagine as the people were coming to faith and they were learning what it meant to follow Jesus in the early church and some were coming to faith in Jesus and their spouses weren't married, their spouses weren't coming to faith. They were remaining as unbelievers and they were confused. Now, what do we do? We're not supposed to be unequally yoked. Do we, do we say goodbye to those unbelievers? Do we find believers to marry? What do we do? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him. He should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbeliever, unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so the scriptures clearly teach, Jesus clearly teaches that there are two provisions for divorce, marital unfaithfulness and desertion by an unbeliever. Now, beyond that, taking those two clear teachings of the Bible and applying them to situations can become very difficult and very complex. And some of you know of that complexity and some of you have dealt with that complexity and some of, some of us, the elders, have dealt with that complexity But that is in the background here. Now, going away from that uh, semi-tangent, back to our passage. You have a conservative school, then you have a liberal school of thought. And these were the ones that the Pharisees that are questioning Jesus are likely aligned with. This school, they knew the teaching of Jesus. Excuse me. They knew the teaching of Genesis. They knew God's intent for marriage. They knew that God hates divorce because he had said it through the Old Testament prophets. And yet, they softened God's commands and they concluded that that word indecency could be more broadly defined. So in a patriarchal society such as this, such as the ancient world, a husband not a wife, but a husband could divorce his wife if he was simply displeased with her, if he was annoyed with her, if he was embarrassed by her in any way. And it's helpful for us to know the climate, the Jewish climate, and some of the the backdrop of, of how these schools of thought existed and operated You see, this interpretation, this liberal interpretation stemming from Moses' words gave their hearts license to do whatever they wanted to do. 
You see, Jesus was fine. Moses was fine with divorce, Jesus. It says here, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And what does Jesus do? Jesus brings attention, first of all, briefly to their hearts. It's because of the hardness of heart that he wrote you this command. This is because of your sin that this happened. In other words, this was less of a command of Moses. This was more of a concession of Moses. Deuteronomy 24 wasn't meant to make divorce acceptable or frequent. Deuteronomy 24 was simply meant to limit its damage in the lives of those who are affected in a sinful world. And so Jesus says, don't let your hearts go there. Your hearts were hardened. Hard hearts soften God's commands. And Jesus actually takes this whole train of thought, which we could say it's, it's mercy, right? Deuteronomy 24 is mercy in a broken world. Moses allowed this because of your sin, because of the hardness of your hearts, not because that was God's intent, not because that's what God wanted. And Jesus actually takes this mercy a step further and he levels the playing field when he gets back into the house. If you jump back, if you jump down to the bottom of this passage, to the end of this passage, he's in the house with his disciples. And he explains to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What's that all about? Well, Jewish law didn't recognize the right of a woman to divorce her husband. Only the right of a man. And so Jesus further extends this mercy to a broken world and levels the playing field for, for men and women. Let me read what I think is a good explanation of it from one of the commentators I worked through this week. According to rabbinic law, a man could commit adultery against another married man by seducing his wife, and a wife could commit adultery against her husband by infidelity, but a husband could not be said to commit adultery against his wife. This, meaning Jesus' words here, elevated the status of the wife to the same dignity as her husband and placed under the husband an obligation of of fidelity. Mercy in a broken world. See, the root problem with the Pharisees wasn't necessarily their faulty interpretation of a word. It was their hearts, right? Jesus harps on the hearts of the Pharisees over and over again. Hearts that love to soften what God says. Hearts that love to serve self rather than giving self away. And so as they seek to 
back Jesus in a corner and, and test him and, and trick him into saying something, he turns it right back on them and says, it's your hearts that are at issue. And as we come to this passage, as this passage comes to us this morning by way of the Holy Spirit, it reminds us of the need to guard our own hearts, I think, against the softening of God's commands. To reject the lie that a life of faithfulness to Jesus would ever come at a cost, at a price to be paid. As I spoke of last week from Psalm 1, this so-called wisdom of the world needs to be rejected and the word of God needs to reign in our lives and be delighted in. And friends, it's no different for this specific issue of divorce. In the issue of divorce, we as Christians are susceptible to the same slip that we see here, to the same softening that we see here. Divorce is never easy, and there's never an easy answer. But we hear these kinds of things. Did God really mean when he said blank? Surely God wouldn't want me to be in an unhappy marriage all of my life. Or even this one. Well, divorcing my spouse is not an unforgivable sin, so surely God will forgive me. We need to guard our hearts against softening God's commands. Jesus came to bring life. He said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Marriage is God's idea. And his ideal is good. And that's where Jesus goes next. And that's really the, the thrust, the primary thrust of the passage. And it's the second truth I want us to think about this morning. Simply this, God made marriage and it is good. God made marriage and it is good. And we spent a lot of time on the, the negative, on that first part, kind of framing the context and, and explaining the issues involved. But Jesus simply says a statement, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed that. But the bulk of Jesus' response is this. God made marriage and it's good. That's where Jesus wants their focus to be. That's where Mark wants our focus to be. Not on the minutia of what constitutes a biblical divorce and when can we do this and when... No, Jesus says marriage. It's about God's ideal. And you know as well as I do that we live in a day and in an age that diminishes marriage, that doesn't celebrate its goodness, but instead laments about how cumbersome it can be. Right? It's an outdated institution we hear. And young people, you young people soon to be married in the next 5, 10, 15 years, for my kids, 30 years, you're going to hear this at the university. You don't need to be married. 
You need to test drive that person. Live with them for a little bit before you, uh, before you commit. And even then, you don't have to commit. You're going to hear those lies. And they're just that, they're lies. I read an article this week from the so-called wisdom of the world. It was entitled, 10 Reasons Why You Don't Have to Get Married. And it was just a beautiful, grievous encapsulation of our cultural air. And I'm not going to read all 10 to you, but I want to read four. Number one, 10 reasons why you don't have to get married. Number one, you get to know yourself and find your personal happiness. One is the loneliest number. Being unmarried offers you a unique freedom to spend time with yourself and to make mistakes and learn from them without having to worry about how those mistakes may affect your spouse. Putting yourself first may sound selfish, but it just really means you're eager to grow as an individual. And that's definitely a good thing. Number two, your finances are your own. Some of the biggest stressors on marriage are the financial aspects of it. Combining assets, joint bank accounts, disagreements on what and where to spend money. All these things are extra weight on a relationship, but especially on a married couple. Number three, you can still build and have a wonderful family. The idea of family is almost always tied with marriage, especially when children come into the picture. But the definition of family is extremely diverse and personal for each family union. Not being married means you don't mean, not being married doesn't mean that you can't have a happy and healthy family with or without kids. Number four, since love is different for everyone, the same traditions don't always apply. Love is personal. It's specific to a person or relationship. It's constantly changing. It's always unique. If love is so unchangeable and diverse, then in some cases, confining it to an institution like marriage isn't what best to help it thrive. Baloney. It's nonsense. We need to hear from God. And we hear from God this morning through Jesus. And Jesus takes his listeners and he takes us all the way back to the beginning. He doesn't get wrapped up in the debate at hand, but in a sense he transcends it. And he focuses not on the distortion to marriage that sin brings, but on the beautiful design and intention of God. And it's those two things that make the debate and discussion about marriage so crucial. Marriage is not some human construct. It's not a helpful societal structure that we've invented for the flourishing of mankind. Marriage is so much more. It is God's design for the joy of His creatures. And therefore, for the glory of his name, what does Paul say to the church in Ephesus? It's a billboard for the glory of God, for the relationship that Christ has with his church. One of my favorite pastors, Ray Ortland, speaks to the importance of this. He says, the first cosmos was created as the home of a young couple named Adam and Eve. The new cosmos will be created as the eternal home of the son and his bride. It is not as though marriage is just one theme among others in the Bible. Instead, marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible within which all the other themes find their place. 
And therefore, marriage is not something that ought to be redefined, that ought to be reconfigured, that ought to be set aside. It's something, whether you're married or not this morning, to be celebrated, to be treasured, to be championed. And again, that's not because everyone is called to be married. But you've got to see the beauty and the grandeur of what God created and the picture that it emanates to the world. And so Jesus' answer to the Pharisees takes them briefly to their sin and to the hardness of their hearts before lifting them up to the vision of the divine. And the vision for humanity's most fundamental relationship. It's almost as if Jesus says, don't look for ways out of this. That's not, what you, that's not where your focus needs to be. Look at what God has made and celebrate it and treasure it. And four things are part of Jesus' answer as he takes his listeners back to Genesis to the creation account. And I want to close briefly with these four things. He made them male and female. Oh boy. Marriage is not designed to celebrate oneness. It's designed to celebrate two who are different, complementing one another. It's not a celebration of sameness. It's written in creation. And anything contrary to that is not God's will. One writer says, if you believe in what it says in Genesis 1 about God making heaven and earth, and the binaries are important, heaven and earth, the sea and dry land and so on, and then you end up with male and female. It's all about God making complementary pairs which are meant to work together. And so the sexual confusion and the battles of our day absolutely do matter. And they're far from cursory. And this is, boy, this is a big issue. We may differ with how to engage these issues, all these issues, but we must acknowledge and celebrate God's ideal and God's design. He made them male and female. Number two, leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. We've heard it a thousand times in almost every marriage sermon, wedding ceremony we've ever been to. But in the ancient Near East, a culture that was so strong on ancestral ties, this concept was radical. To leave and to cleave. God calls men to move towards their wives, to make all the relational sacrifices necessary to make her a priority and a prize and a treasure and a devotion above all others. And the Hebrew root here of hold fast is used elsewhere to describe the soldering of metal together, not to be broken. 
so united that they are essentially one, and that's where Jesus goes next, to become one. What does this mean? It means simply a life fully shared in flesh, in finance, in purpose, in reputation, in suffering, in prosperity, in equality, in everything. And then finally, joined by God, Jesus says. God is the main actor in a marriage. It's not peripheral. It's not simply before God and all these witnesses. It is that, but it involves God. It's not something merely on paper, in pictures, or in our memories. It's something that's spiritually bound, and it's not ours to discard. Not easily, anyway. God made marriage and it's good. Brothers and sisters, so much more could be said on this issue. And I know that this is a complex issue. I've lived its complexity in my ministry. Many of you have lived its complexity in your lives. But the scriptures remind us simply of this this morning, that God's design of marriage is ours to celebrate and enjoy, not to soften and not to avoid. It's a relationship that is fundamental to flourishing, yes, but it's instrumental in proclaiming his glory. So as I was studying this week, I was reminded of my own wedding day and that way too long sermon that my dad preached at our wedding day. And to his insistence that Anna and I repeat three times, reflect the glory, reflect the glory, reflect the glory. That's what Jesus says. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the teaching of your word. We lament at the brokenness of our world, at the pull of our own sinful hearts at times to soften your commands, to look for excuses, to look for ways out. Father, some of us in here have marriages that have long flourished and have long been instruments of peace and prosperity and joy and pleasure. And some have marriages that have been difficult and stretching and painful. Why both of those exist remains in the mystery of your dealings with your people. But we trust We believe in your word and the goodness of what you have designed and therefore in the path of life that we are called to faithfully walk in and to celebrate and to defend. So Father, I pray that your word this morning would be 
the challenge it needs to be, the encouragement that it needs to be, the balm that it needs to be, the rebuke that it needs to be to your people. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.